Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 15 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 12th of May. And Leon, we're talking to Anders Sorman Nilsson today. That's right. Anders Sorman Nilsson is a futurist. And he's going to be talking to us all about the trends ahead and what companies should be watching out for. Looking at the entrails of the the chicken. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, with some expertise. And then after that, we've got a really, really interesting interview with Stephen Kukulis, the economist, all about the budget. That's right, analysing the budget, and it's really something you should be listening to. Yes, Chris Richardson says it's the uh, budget we had to have, sounding a bit like Keating back in the days of the big recession. Although there are, there are some issues about it. I think so, but I don't think they had much option. But anyway, let's now listen to Anders Sorman Nelson. Anders Solomon Nielsen, uh, tell us about why social media is now traditional media. Well, I think for many years, first of all, I should just pre-frame this by saying that for many years in business, we uh, heard many leaders, CEOs, CMOs saying that, hey, social media is just something people do between friends. And I think the conversations really started. We've seen social conversations really becoming commercial conversations And as a result, really, we have to think of them as part of the traditional marketing and communications mix. Uh, We can see, for example, that the uh, the politician that tends to lead in the popularity polls on Facebook, for example, tends to be the candidate in the case, for example, of Donald Trump or even Barack Obama tends to be the one that takes out the election. So we are really now seeing that social media is part of the traditional and the mainstream game when it comes to marketing and communications. And indeed, uh, Donald Trump has shown that with his tweet. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, again, uh, social media, and we saw that in the Mark Zuckerberg manifesto, was to some degree as well, you could argue, hijacked for political purposes and the creation of sort of filter bubbles. Once you click on something on Facebook, or even if you're open to the idea of a fake piece of news, then that also alerts the rest of the internet to the fact that you might be amenable to a particular style of news as well that really appeals to your own psychographic, creating your own kind of social sort of version of the echo chamber. Right. The the big question is um, how can companies effectively utilize social media as a business tool? I think that there's a variety of different ways. I think one of the key things right now is that it's impossible for a business to claim that they are customer centric or client centric without also being heavily data centric. So let me give you an example of this. For example, if you are active, take in the case of Facebook, that you have a business Facebook page, for example. Well, how much digging around do you do to kind of psychographically and demographically get customer insights about that particular database? For example, do they tend to be females between the ages of 25 and 35? Where do they live? What's their income? What's their educational level? And of course, once you've got that sort of psychographic data, it becomes very, very easy to both on, say, LinkedIn, if you're also business to business or via Facebook, if you're more business to consumer or business to business, to then replicate and find similar people to those who are already engaging with you. That would be one example of how to use social media in a way where you're really having a two-way dialogue, but you're also using the benefits of big data. And this is something both big business and small business can do. Uh, Even small businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do it in our business all of the time to find new uh, clients, new leads, new prospects is that we really canvas and look at 
who's following us on Facebook, who are the people that tend to follow us on Twitter, who are the styles of people or the kind of buyer personas that we want to appeal to. And given all, uh, given the kind of buyer personas that we've built in our own business, we then go out and try and find people who are similar to those uh, to then build our business as well. Of course, you, you also have things like tools like HubSpot, Hootsuite, Buffer. Companies can schedule tweets and LinkedIn updates and blog promotions using those tools, can't they? Yeah, and they're all great ways of ensuring both uh, inbound leads and also outbound communications. And I think really the marketing mix of the future is that sort of combination of being able to broadcast or even narrowcast information to specific psychographic even a psychographical one, such as Leon, Gary, or Anders, for example, uh, but also having the ability to sort of monitor the uh, the customer journeys that people take on their way to eventually uh, dealing with you. And that can be, yes, via, say, HubSpot or um, Buffer or Hootsuite, etc. You have the ability both to broadcast, but also to, to really monitor in a very elegant and sophisticated way, similar to the big businesses, to see where your customer journey that you've designed might be either breaking apart or where it might be super successful as clients and prospects move from awareness to engagement to evaluation to decision and even usage or loyalty to your particular brand. And across those five stages, you can see, hey, do we need to design new digital or analog touch points that's going to win both digital minds and analog hearts of. And as one of the problems appears to be, and Trump has brought this to the fore, is the provenance of what's put up there. And how dangerous would it be for a company to be camped on by an enemy of them? How do you handle that sort of thing? I mean, it's interesting that this idea of, of fake news has really emerged in the last sort of 12 months. I mean, fake news is not news in many ways because it's always been around. I mean, I think even someone like Joseph Goebbels was uh, a masterful person in a negative sense of both propaganda and fake news. And we could even argue that, you know, some ancient texts, etc., are also pieces of fake news potentially. So, these things live on potentially. It's about great storytelling. It's what captures the imaginations of people and a format may or may not care that much about. Where do you check, and if you look at the Trump thing, people believe a lot of this uh, alternative facts? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in many ways, we are living in a uh, post-fact environment that's not necessarily uh, anything that's new, as I alluded to before. You know, we've never lived in a, in a world that's been perfectly scientific and always uh, backed by facts. Uh, the human mind in many ways is programmed towards great storytelling. And uh, for all his uh, flaws, uh, Trump is a fairly masterful storyteller and certainly one that's been able to, to tune into the popular imaginations of, uh, of some voters. And I think businesses really need to learn how to do the same. I mean, this is nothing new masterful PR, which has been a human skill for many years, being able to twist and turn around stories. And that can happen both if your brand is attacked, being able to tell a better narrative than the attackers, or it can uh, also just be for, uh, for the sort of manipulation that we've seen over many, many years, where, for example, for many years, we saw tobacco companies and other, other companies and brands being able to tell a story that captured the imaginations of people, despite the murmurs about the fact that, you know, science shows that smoking is not good for you. So the thing we all need to excel at is great storytelling that wins the, in many ways, the digital minds and the analog hearts of tomorrow's customers. What fascinates me is the growth of podcasts. Now, that is actually a great medium for companies as well, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, of course, we have to applaud you guys and for all the listeners tuning into this particular podcast, which you should spread all over the interwebs. Uh, that podcasting is a great way to connect with your audience, both from a B2C and a B2B perspective. And one of the things that I love about podcasts, and I'm an avid listener myself, is that while video, uh, in many ways, we can say back in the day, killed the radio star. I think video and podcasting play dual and very important roles in an age of mobile. I mean, today, for example, I'll be making my way in from, from Pitwater to a meeting in, in Sydney later on with a, with a large French multinational client. And for that particular journey, using public transport and the ferry, well, I don't really want to watch video while I can watch the Manly to CBD or Circular Key route on, uh, on the sea. So instead, I prefer to listen to a podcast. It can be highly engaging and a great way for brands uh, to build their own thought leadership and, of course, also to feature and right off the back of great other brands and individuals and thought leaders who they might invite onto the podcast. So, again, I'm very, very bullish when it comes to well-curated podcasts. At the same time, though, uh, video would be quite paramount, uh, particularly with Facebook uh, prioritizing native video and um Instagram giving uh, prime real estate to Instagram stories because of, because of videos. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, from a from a small business perspective, but also for for large enterprise, we see that video is key. You know, it's been said that a picture says a thousand words. In many ways, a video says a thousand pictures, and that's certainly true both when it comes to Facebook and Instagram, as you as you point out. You know, we've uh, we've AB split tested this ourselves in our business and just looked at how many fewer views and likes are YouTube embedded videos on Facebook get contra the exact same content when it's Facebook native videos. So again, you would be foolish not to use these uh, these formats uh, if you're thinking seriously about being uh, a marketing standout. Finally, I mean, there's an issue with um, the company's budget in terms of uh, digital and uh, social media and uh, traditional budget. There's an issue with silos, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we see it with some of our big multinational clients around the world, and we operate in four different continents at the moment. And quite often, we meet the, uh, you know, chief digital officer, and then we uh, meet the chief marketing officer, for example, who have different budgets. And uh, the CMO might be still in charge of what's known as, I think it's uh, in many ways, a misnomer or traditional uh, marketing and the digital guy is the one that gets to play around a little bit with this new social and digital stuff. Really, they should be part of a, a holistic business function or a business uh, capability that spans the entire organization. It's very hard to be digital on the outside i.e. customer facing if you're not also digital on the inside and certainly having different roles and different silos between digital and traditional is a surefire way to ensure that you don't get anywhere with your digital efforts and that you don't stand out in this battle to sort of seamlessly connect with digital minds and analog hearts. Anders, it's been a privilege talking to you. Thank you so much for that terrific information. I'm sure businesses will take all of that into account now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Great to be on the show. It's really, really fascinating. Amazing stuff that he's come up with, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it is. That's right. And I think Stephen Kukulis is coming up with some amazing stuff as well. Well, let's listen to Stephen. Stephen Kukulis, uh, what's your assessment of the Turnbull government's budget? 
Look, there's two aspects to it, I think. One is the political one that's jettisoned that 2014 horror budget and everything that went with that. So it's clear that everything that's been linked to that has now been washed out of the, the budget system, so to speak. And the other part, of course, is the framework that then replaces that, of course. And that's one where I think the Treasurer and the Prime Minister have realised that revenue is an issue if they're ever, ever wanting to balance the budget. So hence the, the hike in the Medicare levy, the increase in the uh, bank tax, if we can call it that, are two quite significant revenue measures between them. They're going to be collecting uh, close to $6 billion per annum by 2020. So, yeah, they've realised that revenue has got to be um, brought around from somewhere, and they're the two things that they've chosen. And at the same time, there's been, you know, a moderate increase in infrastructure spending. There's been some uh, tightening, of course, in the education funding, uh, which has been a legacy from years gone by. But basically, you know, it's a fair effort. It's one that's got the economy, you know, rolling along at a reasonable pace. It's one where there's been some acknowledgement of uh, the importance of providing a decent level of public sector funding for education, health, roads and these sorts of things. But budget deficit is still pretty big, $27 billion. The debt level is still rising for the next couple of years before it hopefully peaks. And that's about it. Yes, there are a few heroic assumptions about the economy in 2020. It's hard to criticise those. It might be strong. But look, there's some risks around that. But I mean, this is exactly the issue. I mean, they are forecasting that despite the deficit now, they will be heading into a definite surplus of $7.4 billion in 2021. But that's assum assuming that Australia's economy grows and that wages growth go moves from 2% to 3% in the next four years. Now, how realistic is that? Look, that's, that's one of the issues that I think is the, um, the weakness in the strategy. Look, it's very hard... To quibble with Treasury forecasts, you know, it's, it's just a I say, you say sort of issue. They've got the very strong rebound in wages, which you quite rightly point out, would be an extremely sharp lift from what we're seeing right now, and particularly with the unemployment still at 5.9%, underemployment um, around 9%. So we've got a very soft labour market. And while ever that is the case, you've got uh, little chance that wages growth is going to pick up. And of course, in the next little while, we're going to see the cut in penalty payments. Again, not a huge issue in terms of wage, aggregate wages growth, but nonetheless, it's a negative on that sort of uh, measure of wages. So uh, if you look at that return to surplus that you point out in 2021, the bulk of that is due to income tax uh, collections rising. And of course, income tax is strongly linked to wages growth. So the, the question is that if they fall short, on wages, if wages growth are a bit more moderate than they're assuming, uh, then of course that surplus just simply won't be there. And of course, the other unknown is the direction of commodity prices. Yes, well, they've, they've assumed that the iron ore price is you know, similar to where it is now. So uh, it's $60 on the spot price and so free on board, which accounts for um, the freight costs. They're assuming 55 and that's you know, give or take a dollar where it is now. So that's I guess uh, not not unreasonable, but I've noted that some of the big commodity price forecasting teams at the big local banks and the big uh, international banks are suggesting that there is an oversupply issue coming along. The Chinese economy, while it's still doing reasonably, the fact that it's skewing towards services means that there's less demand for raw materials, the commodities, and iron ore is one of those. So that, if again, if we get any shortfall on that iron ore price, it's interesting to note that in the budget, they did put a sensitivity uh, number in there that for every one US dollar a tonne, it's worth $420 million to the budget bottom line. So if the price happens to be, say, 
10 US dollars a ton lower than it currently is, and, and that, all the good forecasters are forecasting that, well, then all of a sudden you're losing $4.2 billion per annum from the budget bottom line. And again, another reason to think that that surplus in 2021, well, I wouldn't be betting on it. Infrastructure spending looks really, really good. Things like the inland rail and the Sydney's second airport and uh, Melbourne's Tullamorale link, all of that sort of stuff. The issue is that there has been no cost-effectiveness study of that. And what are the chances of us being left with some white elephants here? Yes, and I, uh, I think we all remember the Alice Springs to Darwin Railway in the Howard years, which was just a, a disaster. It cost a billion dollars. They ended up selling it for $100 million. It was a It was a shocker. Look... I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of infrastructure spending at a time when the economy is a little bit weak. Obviously, there's this, the money pumped into the economy, people are employed and you know, they're active making the infrastructure. So that's a good thing. It's also good that you've got a legacy asset. And by that, I mean, you do have an airport that uh, business people, tourists and freight can be flown in and out of. We do have roads that people use and train systems that people use. But the problem is, and it's one that we saw in the Howard years with the Alice Springs to Darwin Railway, which was a which was a dreadful white elephant project. They had marginal seats in the Northern Territory, so they uh, pumped um, a couple of billion bucks into that, and it, it turned out to be a disaster. Is that these current projects are not white elephants as well? That we do actually see Infrastructure Australia, the ex, analyse the cost and benefit of infrastructure projects. Yeah, running a fine tooth comb over the ones that have been uh, mentioned in the budget, and if they do stack up great, go ahead and do them and do them quickly because it's good for the economy and it's good for the productivity of the economy in the long run. But again, be aware that some of these projects just might not be quite as attractive when it comes to the cost-benefit analysis. So have them on the agenda, that's good, but just make sure that they're not uh, these proverbial white elephants that turn out to be roads to nowhere or infrastructure that no one uses. The uh, tax slug on banks, the uh, $6.2 billion tax slug on banks. It's been said, the Business Council of Australia this morning was saying that the banks will pass that on to borrowers, consumers and to shareholders with uh, uh, lower interest rates on deposits and higher interest rates on mortgage rates. I mean, what, what's your view of that? Look, we, we've seen in the past that uh, other levies and tax increases from the government are passed on. We recall the GST back in the year 2000. Uh, that was passed on to consumers, as it should have been. And, in fact, that was part of the incentive of having the GST when it was imposed. And, of course, we remember the carbon price or, or carbon tax, if you like, that the Gillard government introduced. And that was passed on in the form of higher electricity prices. Um, so we, we've got this bank tax that's coming into play very soon. And um, I'd be surprised if the banks didn't cover the cost of that uh, impost by hiking the interest rates they charge borrowers, maybe trimming the interest rate that they charge, or the, sorry, that they pay to depositors. And when we look at the hard numbers, it only amounts to a, less than 0.1 of a percent in terms of the borrowing and lending rates. So in a sense, I reckon they can almost mask the fact that they're hiking mortgage rates by, you know, 0.07 or 8% and they cut deposit rates by a similar amount because that's all they need to do to cover this impost. So we'll see what happens. And uh, so this will be fascinating to see. I mean, clearly this budget has been designed with an eye on the polls because they got a big shock into the 2016 election and uh, they don't want a repetition of the 2014 budget. So they've drawn a line under that. 
I think they've drawn a line under those that austerity budget, which I think it's being referred to. And I think even within the Liberal Party, they realised that was a shocker, and, and it was. And so the fact that they've got rid of that, and the fact that there are a few sweeteners out there, as we mentioned, you know, infrastructure spending that they're uh, still on a you know slow and steady path, if we can call it that, towards a balanced budget. You know, are things that are a bit more appealing, and the fact that they're trying to even partly reverse some of the cuts in education are, are again a realisation that perhaps they went a little too far in some of those areas. So the politics will be interesting. I'm sure that it's going to be much easier for Mr Turnbull and Mr Morrison to front the media over the next few weeks they're selling their budget than it was for Mr Abbey, uh, Abbott and Mr Hockey, pardon me, um, uh, three years ago when they had their horror austerity budget in 2014. And because this budget has been, I mean, some are suggesting it's labour light, it's a kind of budget that a Labour government would have bought in, we expecting it will probably get through the Senate. Well, I think Labor have indicated they're going to pass the banking levy. That's one that's almost a given. And I dare say, given that uh, the budget did effectively allocate the revenue from the Medicare levy increase uh, to disability cover, which, of course, is a very expensive big-ticket item, I think Labor would be would be very um, unwise to block that because, again, even though the money is sort of into the pool of revenue that the government gets, the fact that they've notionally allocated against the disability insurance scheme is actually a, a clever way of doing it. I think Labor will probably let the bulk of these measures go through. Maybe they'll, they'll reserve their right on some of the uh, education funding issues. They're probably uh, going to be very strong on those sorts of things. But on the, the, the main items, the revenue items, I think uh, Labor will probably just take a deep breath and let them get through uh, the Senate because, of course, if they happen to win the election in a couple of years' time, it's going to be very helpful for their budget bottom line when they're framing their budget, if in fact that happens. Sivan Coolis, thank you very much again for your time. It's an absolute pleasure, Leon. So what do you think, Leon? As Stephen says, there's a lot of assumptions of Treasury there. Uh, you know, for a start, that Australia's growth is going to get to 3%. And wage growth is going to increase. And, of course, there's the issues about those infrastructure spending. That's right, yeah. So there's an awful lot of hope and optimism in there, isn't there? I think so. All right. Now, the news. What have you got? The big news this week is the budget, which is actually drawing a line under the disaster of the 2014 budget. The forecast deficit of $29.4 billion for fiscal 2018 in the budget papers is slightly wider than what economists had predicted. The deficit will be $21.4 billion next year and $22.1 billion in 2019-20. Treasury has forecast a dramatic turnaround after that, with growth and wages, the main contributors to projected to return to a $7.4 billion surplus in 2020-21, with wage growth expected to increase from around 2% to above 3% over the next four years. It forecasts the economy consistently growing by 3% from 2018. The great unknown, of course, remains the direction of commodity prices, with iron ore prices moving up and down. Gary, budget forecasts always overpromise and underdeliver. For example, last year's budget, Mr. Morrison's first, forecasts a $27.1 billion deficit this year, $15.4 billion the next, and $6 billion in 2019-20. So the, the actual figures are a bit different, aren't they? Totally different. And Treasury has form not making correct predictions. So let's just see whether they will get into surplus in 2020-21. Yeah, indeed. It, uh, let's hope. The other part of the budget is that taxpayers and the banks will do the heavy lifting to repair the budget deficit. The budget will see Australians paying higher tax through an increase in the Medicare levy to plug the gap in the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And the big four banks and Macquarie 
will be hit with a new levy of six basis points on liabilities that will apply to senior bonds, covered bonds, subordinated bonds, and all deposits over the 250000 in protected deposits per individual. That will raise $6.2 billion over the next four years to repair the budget. In addition to that, banking executives breaching misconduct laws will face penalties ranging from $50 million for small banks and $200 million for larger banks. And the government also will establish a new Australian Financial Complaints Authority to administer a banking executive accountability regime, and this will be administered by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, costing $4.3 million. There will be a permanent Australian Competition and Consumer Commission team to investigate competition in the banking and finance system. The Prudential Regulator will also get the power to set the long-term remuneration of senior bankers. And while the budget gets rid of the Medicare rebate freeze that was widely condemned by doctors... The Medicare levy will increase by 0.5% from 2019, and this means just about all Australians will have a bigger tax bill. Those on a taxable annual income of 85000 will pay an extra $425 a year. The bulk of the money will go towards ensuring the $22 billion NDIS will be fully funded, potentially ending the political battle over the scheme's future. Employers will pay an annual levy of $1,800 per worker per year on temporary work visas and a $5,000 one-off levy for those on a permanent skill visa. There's about one thing that I can see that the public will like about all this, and that is they're hitting the banks. That's right. (laughs) I think so too. But the public is going to have to do the heavy lifting. Well, we've got to get a budget into surplus, and how do you do it? You've got to get more revenue. And as the Treasurer says, we have to plug the gap in the NDIS. Now, a $75 billion road, rail and airport plan and a housing affordability package are the centrepieces of this year's high-taxing, big-spending budget. Infrastructure measures in the budget include a buyback of the Snowy Hydro Company from New South Wales and Victoria, giving Canberra control or outright ownership, creating a new Western Sydney Airport Corporation to deliver the second airport by 2026 with earthworks to commence late next year. It will cost $5.3 billion. $8.4 billion invested in the government-owned Australian Rail Track Corporation building a 1,700-kilometre rail line from Melbourne to Brisbane. A $10 billion national rail program delivering urban and regional rail projects such as the Tullamarine Rail Link, Western Sydney Airport Rail Link, Brisbane Metro and Adelink. And $844 million to upgrade the Bruce Highway and $1.5 6 billion in road upgrades and other measures in Western Australia. Now, the infrastructure plan, Gary, could con- potentially create thousands of jobs. The budget is also tackling housing affordability with measures allowing first home buyers to use up to $30,000 of voluntary superannuation contributions to place a deposit on a home. Contributions can be made from the 1st of July this year and potential home buyers will be able to withdraw cash from the 1st of July 2018 onwards along with any associated earnings. The scheme is expected to cost the budget bottom line $250 million over four years. The Australian Taxation Office is being given an additional $9.4 million for its implementation. The Treasurer Scott Morrison said the government is making changes that will help more people realise their goals of home ownership. He said the first home super saver scheme will attract the tax advantages of superannuation with contributions and earnings taxed at 15% rather than marginal rates and withdrawals taxed at their marginal rates less 30 percentage points. And while all this will be criticised by economists saying it will push up house prices, the government is also looking to deal with supply issues. In a bid to encourage older people to downsize and free up more properties, people aged 65 and over from the 1st of July 2018 will be able to make a non-concessional contribution of up to 300 
$1,000 from the sale of their principal residence into their superannuation. The only caveat is they'll need to have lived there for at least 10 years. The budget will establish a national housing infrastructure facility of $1 billion, funding what they call micro-city deals that remove infrastructure impediments to to developing new homes. There will also be a new $63 million national housing finance and investment corporation to provide long-term, low-cost finance through aggregated bonds to support more affordable rental housing. And the government will also be tightening the rules around negative gearing, specifically around people claiming travel expenses and depreciation deductions. But they're keeping negative gearing, Gary, and they're keeping the concessional tax deductions. Next time around, next budget, uh, we're bound to see a change there. I think so too. And uh, a lot of economists are saying that housing affordability package is not going to amount to much. No, it won't. Now, in a sign of pressure on the Australian economy from rising unemployment and low wages growth, Australian retail sales fell unexpectedly, sipping, slipping 0.1% in March, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And the retail sector is now heading backwards. It's in recession, Gary. Retail sales have fallen in three of the last four months. Economists have been tipping a 0.3% rise. And these are the weakest figures for retail since 2012, the third weakest since 2010 when the GST was introduced. The retail figures were dragged down by falling sales in department stores, which were down 0.6%. There were also falls in food retailing, down 0.5%. Cafes, restaurants and takeaway food services was down 0.5%. And household goods, down 0.1%. Retail sales fell in Queensland, down 0.4%. Western Australia, down 0.1%. The Northern Territory, down 0.3%. And Tasmania, down 0.1%. But they rose in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory. And that's not a good sign, Gary. No, it isn't at all. And of course, you've still got this looming and growing problem of underemployment. It's a real issue. And I think it's going to affect the GDP figures coming up next month. That looks almost certain, doesn't it? But on the plus side, Australian business conditions have soared to their highest level since 2008, rising two points to 14 index points, well above the long run average, according to the latest NAB business surveys. Business confidence also came into line with business conditions in April hitting its highest level since 2010, rising 7 points to 13 index points. The figures come after the Reserve Bank of Australia estimated on Friday that Australia's GDP will rise between 2.75 and 3.75% in 2018, which is up from 2.5% to 3.5% previously. That's reasonably optimistic. I hope we make it. Now, uh, some interesting corporate news. Westpac has reported an interim $4.02 billion cash profit, a rise of 3% for the half year, reported net profit after tax came in at 3.907, up 6%. Lending and customer deposit growth was up 4 and 6% respectively. This was partially offset by margins shrinking 7 basis points. Net interest margins were trimmed by higher funding costs in the Consumer and Business Bank. Westpac's Consumer Bank grew its cash earnings by 5% on the half to $1.5 billion. Quite stunning. And they're still complaining about the levy. That's right. Australia's biggest bank, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, has reported a $2.4 billion third quarter cash profit to March 31. That's slightly up on the $2.3 billion figure reported in the previous corresponding period. The CBA said business lending remains subdued with business and private banking providing the strongest growth. The CBA has reduced investment lending in the home lending portfolio. Its home lending book grew by 7% during the period compared with a system growth of 7.8%. Consumer arrears continued to be elevated in Western Australia and rose in line with seasonal 
seasonal expectations. Troublesome and impaired assets edged down from 6.8 billion to 6.7 billion with exposures to department development falling, which is a good sign. And individual provisions fell from 1.017 billion to 984 million in December quarter, and collective provisions came in at 2.754 billion, down from 2.807 billion in December quarter. So their loan book is looking better. It's looking much better, yeah. Uh, and uh, I think the government sees that. Now, finally, Gary, Fairfax Media has confirmed it's in talks with a private equity consortium led by US private equity giant TPG to buy a big chunk of the group's empire for $2.2 billion. And if the board accepts the offer, the proposed acquisition would still require approval from the Foreign Investment Review Board. TPG is succeeding to acquire not only the lucrative domain real estate business, but also Australian Metro Media, which includes the mastheads of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Australian Financial Review. Now, under the proposal, Fairfax shareholders would keep the company's assets in New Zealand, the regional newspaper's business, its stake in Macquarie Radio Network, and its 50% share in the Stan streaming venture. And in a statement to the market, Fairfax said its board was reviewing the indicative proposal. And Gary, the word around the traps is that Fairfax is unlikely to accept it and might come back to TPG and say, put more money on the table. Yep, well, and of course the doors, they've opened the door to um, a competing offer. Well, Fairfax is now told the market we're for sale. Highest better wins. So that will be fascinating. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And who are we talking to next week? Well, next week we've got Natty Harpaz, who runs the Catch Group, and they have acquired Pumpkin Patch, the yeah. children's wear outfit, and he's going to be talking to us all about that. It's going to be very interesting because it means Catch are going to go into the Brickish and Mortar shop business by the look of it. That's right. Catch, of course, is an online business, so that is going to be fascinating. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.